My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This morning, we heard a passage from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians in which he is defending himself in a particularly unpleasant situation, the likes of which you may possibly have experienced in your own life. It is a situation in which his legitimate leadership is questioned and even undermined. In his case, it is particularly distressing because he's not only potentially losing the trust of his congregation, he is quite certain that they are losing an accurate understanding of the gracious God who died for them. And that, for Paul, is the most unbearable thing of all. It is in this context which gives rise to him relaying one of the most perplexing and yet deeply reassuring things that a Christian can know. God's words to him in the midst of his frustration and apparent failure, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Well, what a counterintuitive concept. Actually, what a countercultural concept. That God's grace is sufficient for us. For his power is made perfect in our weakness. We're going to spend some time this morning reflecting on this peculiar dynamic of our Christian faith and what it means for us. But to really understand what Paul is saying and why, we need to lay out the context a little more fully. For St. Paul, this situation arose in his relationship with the Corinthian church, a church that he had planted and built up personally. We don't know all the details of what went on to disrupt his relationship with them, but we can piece together from the letters that we have that the members of the church had balked perhaps at some of his instructions in an earlier letter, and also that there are these big shots who he refers to as super apostles who have arrived on the scene with all sorts of puffed up credentials. They're behaving in a distinctly unchristian way, and yet the Corinthians are besotted with them. Paul writes this passage to address these people who have disregarded his style of leadership and his gospel message of grace in favor of something that looks a bit different. The first point I want to make is that Paul was really miserable about it. He says this, I wrote you out of much distress an anguish of heart, and with many tears. Some of the things that they had said to him were, if you want to come back to Corinth, you better get some new, better references as to your character and qualifications. Your personal speaking style is weak and unimpressive. 
The fact that you changed your travel plans kind of without telling us means that you're totally untrustworthy and we really don't need to listen to you anymore. Really? Really? He had just been released from what must have been a gruesome, dreadful, tortuous time in prison for the proclamation of the gospel in Ephesus. And these Corinthians are questioning his sincerity, his qualifications. If you have experienced this sort of foolish rebellion, whether as a coach or a teacher or a manager or a parent or the head of a school or the head of a board, you know the kind of distress that Paul must have felt. And therefore, it's a great mercy, I think, that we have this candid account from Paul about how difficult our calling can be, even with faith, even with the power of the Holy Spirit. The second point I want to make is that in this situation, Paul uses what one of the best educations of his day had given him, which was rhetorical style. He uses more than just sincerity and prayer to persuade the Corinthians to redirect their confused minds. He uses language as artfully as he possibly can. You notice that he refers to himself in the third person. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Caesar did that to great effect when describing his impressive campaign in Gaul. It allowed him to say all sorts of great stuff about himself while appearing modest. Well, Paul does that here. We know, of course, that he's actually talking about himself. But somehow, it comes across as more diplomatic, more persuasive. He'll say this in another letter. To all people, I have been all things in order that by all means, some I might save. There's something to take away here. As Christians, we have an obligation to use whatever creativity or education or genius or poetic turn of phrase that we have been given to expound the gracious truth of the life-giving gospel in our contemporary setting. Paul is thinking deeply out of his knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures and his understanding of the popular philosophies of his day, and he's proclaiming into that the person of Jesus in reference to these things, in ways that people will understand. Well, we need to do that too. And there are people here today who have been given exactly that gift. Use it. Be bold to speak into people's lives the person of Jesus Christ and all the ways you understand that person's setting, the way their mind has been formed. Be bold to proclaim the good news. But ultimately, the most important thing that Paul does, the most Christian thing that he does in this situation, is to remind his people about what the life and death 
of Jesus really show us about God? Because counter to all logical human expectations, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. A most powerful man. Counter to all human expectations, the Messiah was crucified. Jesus allowed himself to be weak. Paul says in chapter 13, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Jesus' mission was not world domination by coercion. It was submission to his heavenly father out of trust and love, which actually looked like submission to the Roman authorities of his day. Very countercultural. That is why he's a stumbling block. He seems foolish. I've read so many articles about being strong. And they have their place in reminding us that we need not be controlled by whatever circumstances happen to be our context. Much can be learned by exercising the disciplines that make us strong, mentally and physically. At the very least, they show us that comfort is not our highest goal. But the fact is that when we are strong, we often do not see the power and ultimately the love of God as stronger. When we are strong, the glory is ours. When we are strong, the force often we draw from, not always, but often, we draw from is our determination not to be shown up. And in some cases, in some cases, to be strong, we draw from anger. And of course, this whole argument about being strong, well, in it there's this implied great disdain for weakness. I've been reading an interesting book called You Can't Hurt Me by a remarkable soldier, an impressive athletic competitor named David Goggins. He writes about how he was able to overcome the crippling poverty and racial abuse of his life to become arguably the fittest man in America, having been the only man in history to complete elite training as a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger, and an Air Force tactical air controller. But despite all of his impressive career, at the end of his book, he says something quite profound and candid, that his rage is still seared into his brain like scar tissue, trailing me like a shadow that's trying to chase me down and swallow me whole, but always drives me forward. Well, this is very far from the dynamic 
that Paul gives us in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul, of all people, knows about endurance. He knows about perseverance in suffering. But Paul tells us that our highest calling is not our display of strength. It is our display of trust. Trust in a loving God. Trust in his grace that is sufficient. Jesus, when he is on the cross, when he has relinquished all control and living breath to breath in weakness, he says these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are words that resound eternally. They're words we should learn by heart, just as Jesus did. They're from Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because out of that trust, and consequently that willingness to be weak, God revealed his great glory and authority and power and raised him up bodily into everlasting life as the forerunner for everyone else. Well, what does this mean for us? Paul's countercultural embrace of weakness so that God's power might dwell in him. Well, two things. I'm sure you'll think of more, but two things. If you're over 50 and you have come to the realization that your strength, physical and, alas, intellectual, is probably not on the ascent, be glad, because that was never your highest calling. Trusting in God and giving him glory, that is your highest calling, and we can do that with our final breath. And if you're under 50 and there are yet untapped, undeveloped strengths, prizes to be won, sure, hone them for the glory of God. But do not imagine that those achievements are your ultimate calling, which is good because most of us will never get through Navy SEAL training or an ultramarathon. Your ultimate calling is to receive the love that God has given you in his son Jesus. To receive it, the love poured out through him, which he gives you life now and everlastingly in the world to come and bring glory to your heavenly father. Amen.